0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. You just saw how the Gospel of Luke summarizes the Christmas story like this in chapter 2, verse 7. And she, that's Mary... Gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Women giving birth, that happens every day in the world. It's not an uncommon thing. That's a common thing. So here's a woman, and she gives birth. Granted, it's unusual because she lays the child in a manger It's where the animals eat their food. That's strange, but apart from that, it's a common occurrence. Everything about the scene is common. It's represented over there on a banner. Everything about that scene is fairly common, besides the unusual location, until you look into the manger and you ask this question Who is that child? You know the answer. You've known the answer forever. I know the answer that child is jesus that is jesus the son of god whom we confess to be god himself in the manger it's not a fairy tale it's not a fable it's not a myth but we're stating this as a reality as real as you being here this morning and sitting in real seats as real people that if you were to look into that manger 2,000 years ago, a real manger with a real baby inside of it, you could say, in reality, not a different reality, but our reality, that that baby is God. So much of our Christian life is a matter of knowing what you already know, but really knowing it, seeing what you already see, but differently hearing what you've already heard every Christmas, but not hearing it the same way. What we need this morning is what Paul prayed for the Ephesian saints. He asked God that he, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Something is hidden, can't quite get it. Revelation of the knowledge of him. In this case, him in the manger. You need the spirit, wisdom, and revelation of the knowledge of him. And how will that happen? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. You can see with these eyes, you know the Christmas story. What you need is to see with these eyes and know the Christmas story. We see this child, we know this child. Who doesn't know this child? But we only know the outskirts of his ways how faint a whisper we hear of him. Our hope is just to hear the whisper a little bit loudly this morning. This morning, we are going to make use of one of the great helps that God's given us when we are trying to believe, to take hold by faith what he's revealed in the New Testament of the Scriptures, something like this. The story of Christmas, the babe in the manger who is God. One of the great tools God's given you to understand and believe fully the New Testament is the Old Testament which is not there for you to just flip over to get to the New Testament, but is there to give texture and background and richness to what you find in the New Testament. If you want to appreciate and by the eyes of your heart really gaze upon the meaning of the Christmas story more than some sleepy idea to take hold of it and have it take hold of you, you need to go to the Old Testament which is a thick part of your Bible meant to prepare you to read Luke 2-7 and see the baby who is God swaddled. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to the Old Testament to see. If we say that babe in the manger is God, then we have to know who is God. What does it mean for God, who is He, and what does it mean for Him to be that baby in the manger? And there's almost no better place to go in the Old Testament to find an answer to that question, then in Exodus chapter 19, which is why we find ourselves there today. So be patient with me. We really will get to the manger. But we're trying to give a richness and a texture. We're trying not just to know what we know, but to know it. And therefore, we will begin today actually by looking not at the God of the manger, but the God of the mountain, who is the same God, but revealed differently to us in Exodus 19. Where we are in Exodus 19 is that God, the Almighty God, has delivered His people Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, one of the most famous stories ever told on our planet. He did it by 10 great plagues, and He's brought them now out of Egyptian slavery through the desert to a mountain with Moses at the head of them. They come to a mountain called Mount Sinai, And God has brought them here so that they can, in a sense, witness Him for the first time, to meet God, the God who saved them from Egypt. So let's look at Exodus chapter 19 to see this meeting and to see something of the God we will find also in the manger. On the third new moon... After the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so this is not long after, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold. I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments and he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. What did Israel learn about the God who had rescued them? The only true God, our God, when they met him at Mount Sinai. They learned this. He's untouchable. The message of the mountain was, stay away. A boundary was set. It was firm. If even an animal touched the base of the mountain, you can't touch the animal. You kill it at a distance. No person was allowed to come near, not even priests. If you wanted to go near to the Lord, you couldn't. Not that you would have wanted to, the mountain was on fire. But even if you had wanted to, you could not. And this is true even after they had washed themselves and their clothes consecrated themselves for three whole days. Even if you were a priest, having consecrated yourself for three days, that is as holy as it's possible for a human to be. If you touch the base of the mountain, you would die. The God who delivered them is a God who cannot be touched. That's the lesson of Sinai. Now look from the God of the mountain to the God of the manger. That's the same God. Mary is touching the God of the manger. She's a teenage girl. Touching the God of the and she's not dead. Something's happened. It's called Christmas. It's what we're talking about today. That's what we want to consider. That the God of the mountain that we just beheld, terrifying. He is the God of the manger, not different. That's why we marvel at God being born as a man. It's not just an interesting, pleasant story to put on greeting cards, but it is a fact, one of the most significant facts in the world, that this is the same God. So what we want to do to grasp this truth is to spend some time looking at the God of the mountain the untouchable God of Exodus 19. And once that's firm in our mind, then and only then will we turn to the God of the manger and behold the miracle that we celebrate on Christmas. So first, let's go back to Exodus 19 here and let's consider more closely this God of the mountain. And again, like I said, what he wanted to communicate to his people and us is that he's untouchable. The reason he's untouchable, there's three reasons, I suppose. The first is this, he's too big for you to touch. The creator of heaven and earth could have really used, when he brought his people out of Egypt, any landmark to represent himself to his people. But notice that he chose a mountain. Why did he choose a mountain? Of course he chose a mountain, Well, only of course because you're used to the story by now, but he didn't have to. So why did he choose a mountain? Because it's big. That's why he chose a mountain. Now, I know we're from Indiana, and we don't know this, but if you've traveled, you have seen mountains. It's one of the reasons people travel to see mountains, is so that you can be lost in some of the wonder of it. If you've ever stood on a mountaintop, or even at the base of a mountain, or seen a mountain range, it shows you how little you are. So people travel to see the mountain to sense their own littleness, and to have a sense of wonder. And we're talking about, that's true of mountains not on fire. (laughs) There's a sense of wonder. So God chooses a mountain to convey who he is. Now, I want you to bear in mind, although we can't go into this in detail, that every time God shows himself to people, he is always hiding a lot more than he's showing. So if he catches a mountain on fire, a huge mountain... That's like him pressing very softly with his smallest finger to do that. God's much larger than a mountain, but of course relative to the people, in their experience, not much is bigger than a mountain. So he takes them to a mountain to show how big he is. This is common of God in the Old Testament, trying to convey his largeness by using things very small to him, but very large to us. Remember the great vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, where we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is a manifestation of the Lord. Can't look upon God in His full glory, you will die. But God reveals Himself, and when He reveals Himself to Isaiah, I saw the Lord upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe, the back part of His robe, filled the whole temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these flaming angels, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one of these angels called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds of the temple here shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Again, God conveying his grandeur, because if the train of your robe fills an entire temple, then your robe is very large. If your robe is very large, the way God revealed himself here was very large. Still so much smaller than he is, but he presents himself in magnitude to give us just a sense. It simply suggests, the mountain of Sinai suggests to us If God, whom we can't see, can catch this mountain on fire and shake the whole thing, he's big. Too big, in fact, for any of us ever to approach or to touch. Because we're small. The pillar of fire and of cloud that led God's people through the wilderness probably also was massive because the camp had to see it and follow it, suggesting the bigness of God. Like I said... Even these large revelations of God, so to speak, are so small compared to what He really is. They're like lifting just the corner of His veil of glory and letting out a single ray, and that's a mountain on fire. Because if you want to see really with more accuracy, although still not all the way, the magnitude of the God we're talking about, and we'll see in the manger... You have to go later in Isaiah to chapter 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? That means God's not as large as Mount Sinai. God is so large he can take all the mountains and place them on a scale if he wants to. Or, God is so massive that if he wants, he puts out his hand and in the cupped part of his hand, all seven oceans fit snugly there. Or, if God takes his hand and stretches it across space, the end of his thumb touches one end of the universe and the end of his pinky touches the other. And that is a significant understatement of the grandeur of God. There's something about the vast openness of space. In 1961, when we humans started going there in person, that was one of the things, uh, as we began to see just how massive outer space was and how empty most of it. Many people thought, well, that's evidence there really is no God. He was made up. People thought he was in the sky, but we went past the sky and it's all empty. No God there. But the reason God made such a vast Empty space is the same reason he brought his people to Mount Sinai. Because when you consider how large the universe is, if there's only one, I don't know, I'm not into that, but if you consider how large the universe is, how much distance there is between planets in our solar system and then other solar systems, you tremble. It's scary. And God just reaches out his hand and it's that big to God. He's bigger than the universe. It is to convey to you that God is huge. And if God is that huge, then as you've sometimes felt, He's too big for you. Here you are on the little planet, a little speck, a little tiny person. If there's a God out there, how could He have an interest in you? It's massive. The people of Israel had some sense of that. This is a God too big for us to touch. Again, God was too powerful for anyone to touch him the signs demonstrated on the mountain not only communicated god's bigness it's a mountain but it was on fire and shaking with a tempest and thunder and lightning everything you could imagine everything that terrifies you if you see it terrifies you if you hear it <laughs> have you ever been underneath a powerful airplane that's not far overhead the blue angels when they go it's frightening Times a million. This is the mountain. Exodus 19 speaks of the power of these signs. On the morning of the third day, this is beginning verse 16. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now Mount Sinai a little later was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. Hebrews chapter 12 looks back to this very event and describes it like this as, quote, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. It's in Exodus 20. That's what they begged. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast teaches the mount, touches sorry, the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Not only does he bring them to a mountain, but he explodes the mountain in front of them on purpose to show them. He's powerful. And again, it is the softest touch of his smallest finger. (laughs) It's nothing compared to creating the world. It's actually not a lot compared to the great bold judgments we read of in Revelation that are later to come. They had seen the ten plagues of Egypt. They already knew something of God's power, but even that was small. This is to demonstrate God's power, all of this. But we should bear in mind Like I've said, this is like, well, here's how Job puts it in chapter 26. After describing some of the amazing, powerful works of God, he says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? If you had been in that camp on that day, the third day, washed yourself, cleansed yourself, and you were called to come out, Told, do not touch the base, or you are dead. And you stand there, and there is a mountain on fire. If you've ever encountered a building on fire, if you've been in a house fire, if you stand before a building, you never forget it. You never forget it. It's one thing to hear of it, but if you've experienced it, if this building, without us in it, were to catch on fire, and you stood outside in the parking lot and saw that, you would never forget that sight the rest of your life. Now, bear in mind that you could take this building... And fit it snugly on the side of this mountain. It is an entire mountain. I grew up in California, and sometimes entire mountains would catch on fire. It's a frightening sight. It was to convey the power of God. That's why it might seem, is this overkill? It's not overkill, it's underkill. To blow up the mountain, put loud trumpets, thunder, lightning, tempest, it's everything. It's every natural disaster, it's everything you fear on one mountain to show the power of God. And if He is that powerful, this is what it communicates. I'm not going there. I'm not going to touch even the mountain, much less God Himself. Last of all, God is too holy for anyone to touch Him. You may have wondered why he commanded the people to wash their garments, consecrate themselves, don't go near a woman. All of these rules, it had to do with ritual cleanness. They had to ritually, ceremonially cleanse themselves before they could come before God. Because God is holy. And this communicated to them that he was holy. Cleanse yourselves. But even having doing that, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. The command still was, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Your greatest attempts at being holy are not enough. God is too holy for you. And moving away from the ritual to the moral, you can see in them wanting to be morally holy because when Moses comes down with God's commands, they say, all the Lord says we will do. And if you know the Old Testament, that's a very naive commitment on their part because they will not do it. The rest of the Old Testament will be them not doing all the Lord's commands and God as a consuming fire destroying them in judgment by bringing great nations of judgment upon them to destroy and take away into exile, leave a remnant. They were not holy. God is a consuming fire, God cannot stand unholiness. The mountain was meant to convey that to them, that God is too holy for them. Really, the other things, God is too big, God is too powerful, can be in a sense overcome because Moses, he went up the mountain. But it's this thing, God is too holy. That's why the boundaries are set around. It communicated to the people, stay away, you are not holy enough to be here. If you touch even the mountain on which a holy God sits, you will die. Too big, too powerful, too holy to be touched. That's the message of the God of the mountain. And that is the true God. That wasn't the God then and now it's different. That's God. That's God. It's the only God there's ever been. That's Him revealing Himself on Sinai. Now with these facts firmly upon our minds, we are ready for Christmas. We are ready to bear in mind the God of the Mountain. And now see that same God as the God of the manger. Remember the mountain scene. Remember that there are not two gods or three or four. There's one. And with that in mind, here's Luke 2.7. Hear it again. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths And laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Who is the baby? Who is her firstborn son? John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And then verse 18, And the Word became flesh. You are looking at the Word who became flesh, and that Word is God. The baby in the manger is God, the God of Sinai, the God of the mountain. That's who teenage Mary swaddled and laid in a manger. Colossians 2.9 says this of that baby, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's the difference. It's bodily, but it's the whole fullness of deity. That you saw on the mountain. You saw some of that on the mountain? That's terrifying. The whole fullness of deity. The babe is not like 1% God. The babe is 100% God. The babe is God. Fullness of deity. Creator of The world, the rolling spheres, the universe, you. Philippians 2 says of that baby, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking something he didn't have before. He didn't give anything up. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, namely here a baby. When this baby grows up, his enemies will multiple times try to stone him to death, And they will give their explanation as this, quote, for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. And it was because he walked around saying things like, before Abraham, more than a thousand years before this man, Jesus, lived, before Abraham was, I am taking the sacred name of Almighty God, Yahweh, I am, and applying it to himself. And they couldn't believe that. They could not believe that. They said, we've got to kill you. This cannot be true. Can it be true? Can the God of the mountain be the God of the manger? Can it be true? So now you look again upon the baby in the manger and you say, who is this? Who is this? This is the God of the mountain and the God of the manger. Now we know that there are three what we call persons in the Godhead. This means that God exists as three distinct persons. You have nothing to compare this to. Don't try to make a comparison. You've never met anyone who's more than one person. Everybody's one person. But this is true of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know, therefore, that the babe in the manger is God the Son. Other times we encounter God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. So there is a distinction of persons. But let me make this so clear because it's confusing, I know. But this is true. You do not believe in two gods. You believe in two gods? No, you don't believe in two gods. Monotheists. You believe in one God. So there's not a God on the mountain and a God in the manger. You say, that's God the Father. He's always angry. And there's God the Son and He loves us. That's not true. That is not true. There is one God. Yes, there are three persons. There is one God, and therefore the God of the mountain is not a different God from the God in the manger. If you looked at the God on the mountain, the dark cloud, you say, that's God. When you look at the baby in the manger, that's God, not a different God. Now, with that firmly in your mind, remember that the God of the mountain, God as He revealed Himself on the mountain before Christmas, too big, too powerful, too holy for anyone to imagine touching. But this is the miracle of Christmas. It's not that God ever stopped being God, but it's like God the Son took on another nature. Don't compare that to anything either. You don't know anyone with two natures. Don't compare it to anything. It's different. But it happened this one time. True God, 100% God, took on a human nature. That's why we can look at the baby and say, that's God. I thought God was a spirit, not a body. Yes, but he took on that body. He took on our nature completely. That baby is God. That baby is man. It is the God-man. With a human nature, is the God of the manger too big for you to touch? And we would say, as God, yes. As God, yes. Because he is still God. But with a human nature, as man, a teenage girl held him in her womb for nine months. Now she has him in the nook of her arm. She's not exploding. She's not on fire. She's holding God. Look at this baby. Who would say he's too big to be touched? You wouldn't be afraid of him. You wouldn't be, if you're the shepherds walking in there, you're amazed that angels spoke to you out of the sky. But you're not afraid of the baby. It's a baby. Breathing quietly, sleeping, resting, swaddled. He fits inside a feeding trough, God of the mountain, inside a manger, and he fits. He's too big for the mountain, but as a man, he fits in the feeding trough. He's not, this is the point, he's not too big for you to touch. Is he too powerful for you to touch? It says this teenage girl, Mary... Wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. As a man, this God of the manger, Jesus, could not escape the swaddling cloths. Probably tried, pushed his arms, can't escape. He's too weak to escape the swaddling cloths. He can't walk into the manger. His mother, she takes him and lays him. God of the mountain! lays him in a manger as a man. He's not too powerful. You can touch him. Go ahead. You can touch him. He's a baby. He's he's real. He's human. You can touch him. I'd say, well, he's too holy for me to touch. And now that point has some validity where he is holy. In fact, the angel, when the angel announced to Mary and Joseph that they would have this baby in chapter 1 of Luke, The angel said the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. The God of the manger is no less holy than the God of the mountain. But when God took on flesh in the person of Jesus here, he takes on flesh, unholy, unclean people, earthy, imperfect people like us, we can go and touch him in a way we could not touch the mountain." What makes the difference between God of the mountain and God of the manger and our interactions? It's not that God has changed. God is God. Always has been, always will be. It's that God has taken on a human nature so that we can touch Him, so that we can come to Him. Think about it. He was just born, and in the Old Testament law, when a woman gives birth, that is a part of ceremonial uncleanness. She has to give a sacrifice. She has to purify herself. That's a part of our earthiness. Jesus experienced it. He was born. He was in a state of ritual uncleanness as the clean and holy God as a man. That's why we sing welcome to our world. The God of the mountain has come down off the mountain, has taken on our nature and lives among us. And not just lives among us as one who's untouchable, who's perfect, holy, get away from me. But as one who's in the dirt, in the uncleanness with us, in this world with us. In the Old Testament, if you touch the mountain, you die. If you touch the Ark of the Covenant that represents God's presence, you die. If you go into the holiest place that represents God's presence, you die. If you touch the God of the manger, you don't die. In fact, many of the people who touched the God of the manger when he grew older were unclean and sick and sinners, and instead of dying, they were healed. That's the meaning of Christmas. Because of Christmas, because of the incarnation, the God of the manger, who we unholy, unclean, and sinful people could never dream of touching even the base of the mountain upon which he sits, that God of the mountain, sorry, that God of the mountain, we can go to him. We can go to him. We can touch him. We can handle him. He welcomes us. If you're here this morning and you feel unclean and sinful and too earthy, and God in his majesty is far removed, you know he's powerful, you know he's in control. How could he have an interest in your life? And I know even as Christians who have trusted in Christ, who are believers, it can feel that way at times. God is too big. God is too powerful. God is too holy. We feel like Peter falling on our knees saying, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. This couldn't have happened before Christmas, but after Christmas, Jesus reaches down a very human hand, takes Peter, pulls him up. I'm going to use you, Peter. You may feel unclean like the woman with the issue of blood that we read about in the Gospels. She was ceremonially unclean. If she went to that mountain, she would die. So she makes her way privately through the crowd, thinking, if I just touch not the edge of the mountain, but just the edge of his robe, physical robe, if I just touch that, I'll be clean, I'll be healed. But she knows, because she knows about the mountain, that she, is she welcome there? Can she do that? With this holy man, so she sneaks in privately, touches his robe, and is afraid, expecting thunder and lightning, the boom and the crack, and the trumpet and death. And she hears, after Christmas, she hears, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Or if you feel unclean, like the leper, Whom Jesus encountered, who really was ceremonially unclean. People kept him outside the town. Jesus came to the leper. You say, ah, I feel unworthy to come to Jesus, so much sin, so much. I want you to know that the leper did not touch Jesus. He wouldn't have dared it. He wouldn't have dared it. And you know what happened? Jesus touched the leper. This is why Christmas happened. So the God of the mountain, so powerful, could reach out his hand of mercy and put it on your unclean shoulder and say, I'm willing, be clean. This is why the God of the manger went to the cross to die with our uncleanness on him, to clear it, to forgive us. If you feel distant from God this Christmas, maybe it's a hard time of year for you. God has done everything that is possible for you not to be distant. He has literally entered into your world as one of you, and He extends His hand this morning, and you can touch it.